things for me. Ready? Okay. Good morning, everyone. Thank you, Rabbi Branzer. Thank you, Elisa, for all the introductions. Rabbi Branzer in particular, uh, as Rabbi Branzer mentioned, Jeremy and I have the privilege of uh, spending about an hour with Rabbi Branzer formally. It's on the schedule, besides all the other informal um, and unscheduled conversations, uh, reaping the benefits of having a mentor, uh, being able to engage Rabbi Branzer uh, in conversation and to draw upon his expertise in developing uh, what we hope will be a viable and sustainable organization. But my goal here is not necessarily to focus on one organization, but rather to address uh, an idea, rather to, adre- to address a concept. Uh, I'd like this morning to engage in a conversation with you to hopefully develop our background and understanding, in my opinion, what I think what the true crisis is uh, that, uh, that is relevant to our lives, that affects each and every one of us, perhaps directly, but definitely indirectly. Crisis is a word that we use a lot in our lives these days, whether it's the economic crisis, whether it's the shidduch crisis, but today what we want to talk about is the aguna crisis. But before we really delve into the text, I think it's important to, th- to look at a story, to look at something that happened to two people who I know personally. Leah and Dan, they were from upstate New York. Uh, it came across my desk uh, recently, but uh, still a little, bit, a little while ago. Uh, and these, this couple had been married for 10 years. And they'd been trying to have children for a while. And Leah and Dan had tried a number of options. They really wanted to have a family. They had worked uh, on a lot of things in terms of their relationship. They were generally very happy. And Leah, after 10 years, was able to get pregnant, and she got pregnant. And all of a sudden, something happened with her husband, Dan. And it was very unclear uh, what, why he all of a sudden changed his behavior. What was he doing? He started acting in what I call abusive behavior, but that term is also somewhat overused. He wasn't treating her nicely. He wasn't doing, he wasn't treating her respectfully. And one day when she was seven months pregnant, he got very upset with her. And his response to being upset with her, they were actually in the car driving on the road. They were having a conversation and she said something that pushed his buttons. And he wasn't very happy with her. And what he did, his response was, he took his seven-month pregnant wife and pushed her out the door and left her on the street and told her that she had to figure out somewhere else to stay tonight. And that was really the moment when Leah realized that going home to Dan was something that she couldn't afford. It was a risk that she couldn't take. It was a responsibility that she had to assume towards her unborn child that living with her husband Dan would pose a threat not only to herself, but to her children, to her future. And so what she did is she decided that she wanted to get divorced. And Dan, when she approached Dan to actually begin the divorce process, uh, both the civil and the religious divorce, he wasn't very interested in giving her a get. In fact, he was perfectly content with her living a life unable to remarry, unable to build a new family with someone else, he was fine with her being able to continue in this lifestyle without having any responsibility towards her and their children, their child. 
And Leia stayed in upstate New York because that's where her family was from. But Dan decided to move to where his family was from in Brooklyn. Now, if anybody here is from Brooklyn, I tend to pick on Brooklyn a little bit, so I apologize ahead of time. But uh, in Brooklyn, we find that there's some interesting things that happen. Um, Dan moves in with his family in Brooklyn, and he actually starts working at uh, a, a, a mom and pop store selling perfumes, I think it was. And what happened was he just wasn't interested in having a conversation. Someone that I work with gave him a call and said, Dan, you know, we need to start this get process. He wasn't interested. He hung up the, hung up the phone. And what ended up happening is that Yom Kippur that year fell out on a Monday. And the Friday before, a few of my friends, a few of my colleagues, a few of the people that I know went down and they started having a rally outside of the store that he works at. They started saying, making sure that everybody who walks in knew the abuse that their husband, that this man was enduring, uh, was, was putting upon his wife, that he wasn't allowing her to continue on with her life, that he was making sure she remained in Aguna, a woman chained, a woman unable to continue making, making choices and making decisions because he decided to make those decisions for her. I'm going to pause the story there. We'll pick it up a little bit later. And what I want to talk about with you are two different types of agunot. A little bit of background. The first type of aguna is what we call the classic aguna. The woman whose husband is missing. We don't know where he is. We don't know what he's doing. We have modern day applications to this classic aguna. The halakha and the rabbis go through huge, uh, huge, uh, they try in many ways to make sure that we free all these women. What are the modern day applications of this? After 9-11, there are books written of all the situations where we had after 9-11, where we made, made sure that every single woman whose husband was uh, a victim of 9-11 was able to, uh, we were able to pronounce him dead, whether it was through dental records or hair or this or that, or by saying that we know that he went to this ATM and this subway and this and that, whatever happened, we were able to make sure that she, we assumed or we were able to prove enough that her husband was no longer alive. We have other, we have other applications of this. After the Holocaust, we have situations where this came up. Where we weren't sure where husbands were, where wives were. We didn't know what was going on. We have other applications where we, where we have Israeli MIAs. Um, we have, whenever there's a, a plane that, that, that crashes, we have all these issues trying to figure out how we're going to free women when their husbands aren't around. The classic aguna is the woman whose husband has disappeared. We do not know where he is, and therefore she's stuck. She's chained to this marriage, not because he's refusing to give her a get, but simply because he's unable to give her a get because he doesn't, he's not in existence, perhaps. And it's the, it's the leadership's responsibility to figure out a way to free these women and allow them, hopefully, to continue on with their lives. The classic aguna, however, this type of situation where the husband is missing is not the issue that creates a crisis in our times. It's not the issue that makes us sitting here today uh, spending an entire morning dedicated to the issues of the Aguna crisis. What we need to understand is that there's another type of Aguna. I call it the modern-day Aguna. It's the woman whose husband says, I am here, I'm really just not interested in giving you a get. Or, better yet, I will give you a get, but... And there's always something that comes at the end of the sentence. Maybe I want $10 million. And I'm not joking. I had a case where the husband said, it, this happened in um, last 
February, a woman calls me up and says, my husband won't give me again, he's asking for $10 million. It happens to me that my parents have $10 million, but they're really not interested in giving it to him. Uh, or situations where he says, I want uh, this type of custody settlement. The modern day aguna is when there's a string attached. There's something going on, there's something that happens at the end of the sentence. I'm not interested in giving you a get. But if you want me to give you a get, here's what you're going to need to give me. It's a bargaining chip. The modern day aguna is the woman where we know who the, where the husband is, yet, for whatever circumstance, he refuses to give her an unconditional get. That's the topic that I want to discuss with you today. If we turn to our source sheets in source number one, just for a basic background, we see the Torah discusses uh, marriage, in, marriage and divorce specifically in the Torah. Ki kach ish isha uva'ala v'haya in lotim sachin be'inav ki So what happens? A man and a woman get married, and he just v'haya in lotim sachin be'inav. He doesn't. She doesn't. He doesn't like her anymore. He doesn't. She doesn't find favor in his eyes. And we know that there's a famous Mishnayot and Gemara that discuss actually how much of a reason they need to have in order to get divorced. That's a separate discussion. Why people and what circumstances people should get divorced, not my topic today. You should know that based on this Pasuk and the way that the Pasuk is organized, there's lots of discussions over what, should, what is a good and valid reason for two people to get divorced. But what happens if he doesn't like her anymore? He writes her this document. He puts it in her hand. And he sends her away from his house. The Torah sets up very clearly that there is a step, there is a unilateral decision made from the husband to the wife after Kiddushin takes place. A couple decides, a man and a woman, both willingly enter into a relationship called marriage. However, once that relationship is created, the husband decides he doesn't want to, get, he doesn't want to be married to her anymore. He writes her the get, and she's gone. He sends her away from his house. We know later on in history there are things that came out to incentivize the husband to not necessarily just give his wife a get uh, because he feels like it. The ketubah was our most famous example where there was a financial penalty imposed on the husband if he decides to divorce her in order to make sure that he should think about it a little bit more. We know that that about a thousand years ago, 1100 years ago, Takanat Rabbeinu Gershom, Rabbeinu Gershom came along and said that it's not enough that our system, our, our religion, our lifestyle cannot continue to function when we have unilateral divorce. Rather, we must have the woman, the wife, agree to receive the get. That the husband can no longer force her to receive the get and just throw the get in her face and send her away. Takana Rabbeinu Gershom, Rabbeinu Gershom came along in a very profound and influential, and in my opinion is probably one of the more influential statements that ever happened in the history of the Jewish people. Perhaps others may disagree with me, but I can make a good case for that one. That Rabbeinu Gershom came along and said, the wife must receive the get out of her own volition. You cannot force her to receive a get. You can't just throw it at her face and end the relationship. That's not how it works anymore. So we see already that that within the Gaonim, that within the within the the later um, commentaries, rabbis, leadership, we see that this concept and this notion of unilateral divorce, where the husband just decides on a whim to divorce his wife because she burns his food, that is no longer relevant or acceptable within our community. But what I want to focus on right now is a completely different concept. And the concept is what happens when the husband doesn't want to get divorced, but rather it's the wife who wants to get divorced. 
Where in halakha, I just showed you the psukim, I'm not hiding anything from you, the psukim do not discuss a situation where a female, the wife, would be allowed to initiate the divorce process. What happens if she just doesn't like him anymore? What happens if he burns her food? What happens if, if she just is not interested in continuing the relationship, either because she has a great reason, like he is abusive to her, or because she doesn't, she, what I would consider is not a great reason necessarily, she just doesn't like him anymore, she's just not committed anymore, she found someone else she likes. For whatever reason, their marriage is dissolving, he doesn't recognize that she does. Where do we see in halakha, where do we see in our rabbinic literature this notion of female-initiated divorce? The Gemara in source number two and Masachek Tubot actually discusses the notion of a moredet. And a moredet is literally translated as a rebellious wife. It's a woman who refuses to engage in any physical relationship with her husband. And the halakha, the Mishnah tells us, and the Gemara tells us that what happens in the case of a moredet, we actually penalize her and we take away from her the money that she gets from her ketubah. She's supposed to get 200 zoos as part of her ketubah. So if she is a moredit, if she is this woman who refuses physical intimacy, what happens? Every week we take a little bit away from her ketubah. And ultimately, eventually she's going to get to zero and she'll say, okay, great, 200 zoos. What is that, $50? Okay, great, I lost my 50 bucks. Who cares? Right? So that's what's going to happen. But beyond that, uh, the Gemara here asks the question, Hechi damya moredit, source number two, what is this Moredet? What is this rebellious wife? How do we come up with a situation? What are we talking about? Amar Amimar, Amimar says, Amra What is the case? It's a case where she says, I want to remain married to you, but I'm also really interested in making your life miserable. Right? Marriage advice from the Talmud. Right? She says, I want to stay married to you. I'm not interested in getting divorced, but I want to make sure that your life is miserable. Therefore, we're not going to have any type of physical relationship. Aval, Amrama Isalai, but, and this is the turning point, if she says, you are repulsive to me, lo kaifinan la, we do not force her to stay married in. If it's a situation where she says, I want to stay married to you, I just want to make your life miserable, then we take away the money from her ketubah. However, if she says, I don't want to be married to you, you are repulsive to me, you're gross, you're disgusting, you're pa- it's painful to be with you, you're abusive, that's how we would translate in modern day terminology, you're ugly, whatever the situation is, I can't be in a relationship with you anymore. What happens in that situation, says the Gemara, lo kaifinan la, we do not force her to stay in the, relation, in, in the relationship. Brilliant, hugely significant. We have the Gemara talking about in my, the female-initiated divorce. She says, I am not interested in continuing our relationship with you. What is the response we should have? The leadership says, we do not force you to stay married to her. Continuing in the Gemara, Marzutra Amar, however, Marzutra comes along and says, Kaifinanla, we force her. So now we have an argument between Amemar and Marzutra. Amemar comes along and says, we don't force her to stay in the relationship. Marzutra comes along and says, yes, we do. So here's what happened. Why does Marzutra say this? There actually was a situation uh, where this happened. There was an incident that happened, and Marzutra actually forced the woman to stay married. Right? The woman comes to Marzutra and says, listen, my husband is repulsive to me. I can't stay married to him. Marzutra says, I'm sorry, you're stuck. Right? And so what happens? And what came out of the fact that they stayed together? This wonderful Torah scholar, this wonderful leader, Rabbi Chanina. 
And so Rajitcha says, I'm going to prove to you that my position is right. Why is my position right? Because Siyata Dishmaya, God came along and said, because you're right, I'm going to make sure that, this, that the, the product of their continued union is someone of the stature of, of Rabbi Hanina. Velohi. However, the Gemara comes along and says, no, 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 Marzitra. You're wrong. Hatam siyata dishmaya That was the hand of heaven. That was God's, God's decision. God was doing something behind the scenes. We don't really understand. That's the exception to the rule, says the Gemara. The rule should be like Amemar. She says, you are repulsive to me. We're done. It's over with. However, uh, Marzitra, we see, has the other opinion. Uh, and, and the reality is that the conclusion of the Gemara here, at least, seems to be that we hold like Amemar. The proof that Marzutra tries to bring to support his position is not a valid position because we assume, says the Gemara, that that was the hand of heaven. That was God uh, pulling some strings in order for Rabbi Hanina Misura to be born. That is not the modus operandi. That's not how it usually works. And by the end of the Talmudic era, we can go into source three, we actually see that it's not just a situation where she says, Ma'isa lai, you're repulsive, you're repulsive to me, and we don't force her to stay in the relationship. But actually, we see something profound happening. Source number three, Hashta, and I'm jumping, it's the same Gemara, but jumping ahead quite a bit. Hashta de lo itzmar lo hachi lo hachi, tafsa lo mafkinan minei, lo tafsa lo yahavinama. So what they're talking about is a situation where she has all of her clothing and she has everything that she brought into the marriage. And the question is, what do we do with all of her blaot? What do we do with all these things that she has? Does she get to keep it? Does he get to keep it? What's going on? And the Gemara seems to say, so if she takes it, if she left the house and she took all of her clothing, she gets to keep it. If she stays longer, Excuse me, if she left them behind, that we would not go out of our way to give them to her. However, continuing in the underlying part of source number three, there is a 12-month waiting period. She leaves the house. She says, Again, we're talking about a situation of female-initiated divorce. She says, you are repulsive to me. By the end of the Talmudic era, what do we have imposed? Number one, we make her wait 12 months. There's a 12-month waiting period for her get. And what happens during that 12 months? We know that normally a husband is required to provide certain things for his wife. One of those things is food, another thing is shelter, clothing. He needs to make sure that he provides a home for her. During that 12-month waiting period, where after the 12-month waiting period, she gets her, she receives her get. During that 12-month waiting period, he doesn't have to provide for her. So what's happening is we're already seeing the beginning of leniencies being imposed, I would say. We started off with this blanket statement in the, in the Torah that, that seems to indicate unilateral divorce. We enter into the times of the Mishnah, the Mishnah and the Gemara, and we already see this notion where we allow for female-initiated divorce. And what happens by the end of the Talmudic era is that we have uh, a situation where we allow for female-initiated divorce with two stipulations. Number one, there's a 12-month waiting period. And number two, he does not have to provide her mizonot. He does not have to provide her... Um, Basic food and clothing, which we can discuss a little bit later what that means. If we jump ahead just a little bit to the era of the Gaonim, we see something amazing happening. 
we see these two different discussions, these two different concluding statements within the Gemara being taken a little bit further. The 12-month waiting period and his obligations towards her during that waiting period. Source number four, a source from your review who died to own in 760, level one. He quotes our Gemara that we just quoted that there's a 12-month waiting period. If she comes and wants to divorce him, the word to use is He is obligated to divorce her. And if he doesn't divorce her, We put him in some type of excommunication. We put him in some type of quasi-cherem, which we'll address a little bit more, the specifics of what that means. We force him, we ban him, in order to want to, uh, in order to create an incentive for him to give her the get. However, in order to try and for Shalom Bayi, that we don't want people just on a whim, right? We don't want the husbands on a whim to divorce their wives. We don't want the wives on a whim to want to divorce their husband. What do we do? It's not 12 months that we're waiting anymore. We wait one or two weeks. Says Rabbi Yehudai Gaon, what is happening here? This 12-month waiting period is not this objective time that the Gemara was talking about. The idea that the Gemara was trying to convey is that we don't want people ending their marriages on a whim, and therefore, it's important to have some type of waiting period. What is the waiting period that Rabbi Yehudai Gaon thinks is important? The, important the, the time period is one or two weeks. Now, here's my question for you. We know that we have some type of formality within our tradition. That later people can argue on earlier people. This is a known concept. If you're someone from uh, the era of the Geonim, for example, one would not be able to argue on a statement by the Talmud. If you are, a ta- if you are an Amora writing in the Gemara, you cannot argue on a Mishnah. You need to bring another Mishnah or something from that time period to support your position. So what I have here is a statement in 760 CE where Rabbi Hudai Gaon is blatantly going against the Gemara. So one option of how to, of how to reconcile this, this, this problem is by saying that when the Gemara said 12 months, it wasn't literally 12 months. It was that there should be some type of waiting period during that era, 12 months was appropriate. However, already by the time of Rabbi Gaon, one or two weeks was an appropriate waiting period. However... Talmudic scholars have come along and said that the final statement in the Gemara of this 12-month waiting period, what seems to be the conclusion of our female-initiated divorce conversation in the Gemara, that we allow her to get divorced and we require him to divorce her, yet we have this 12-month waiting period, that was actually a later statement. It was from Rabbanan Savorae. And therefore, since it was a Savoraitic statement, and it came much later, not much later, a little bit later, then it's no longer part of what we call the classic Talmudic era, and therefore the Geonim can come along and challenge it because it's within their own parsha. It's within their own uh, level of authority, let's say. And it's important that we understand this, because those who want to say that this was a later addition to the Talmud, that this 12-month waiting period was a later addition to the, to the Talmud, we're going to have some struggles 
when we want to say that the position of the Gemara is that we allow female-initiated divorce, and so on and so forth. What it helps us in our situation is that it, we can adjust this 12-month waiting period to make it more relevant for our times. In source number four, it's adjusted to a one- or two-week waiting period. The other critical thing that we saw in source number four was that there's this ban. He's placed in this type of cheyrem, and we don't actually... Um, we don't actually engage in certain types of relationships with him. Those relationships we'll talk about a little bit later. But it's important that we already see in the 8th century this notion of a ban being placed as a penalty or as an incentive, I would say, for the husband to want to give his wife a divorce in a situation where they said she, he is required to give her a divorce. Source number 5, level 2. It's not just... Uh, It's not, we're, again, we're still talking about how long this waiting period, v'ha'idna, b'beit in ha'gadol, tartan yotivta, hachin kapaskin b'moredet. So in the b'beit in ha'gadol, they're sitting here trying to talk about what are we going to do about this moredet woman? Da'avagav, so they're talking about that in the Gemara. Da'avagav did tfisa mi'adam, b'ktubata, miktubata, ka'amachkinu le'i, umahadrinan le'i l'bal, v'yahavinan la'gitalter. So what happens? In the 9th century, we're already seeing another level of adjusting going on. So what happens is, the first thing that's important to note, is that he gives her the get immediately. He gives her the get immediately. She says, I cannot be married to you anymore. For whatever reason, it's a, it's a situation where she says, He must give her the get immediately. 12 months, 2 weeks, immediately. That's the progression that happens. However, there's another point that's added here. The other point that's added here is that she loses the money of her ketubah. Now, from our, in our times, the money of the ketubah is a very insignificant amount. It happens to be, actually, that when people get divorced, they never actually collect the money in their ketubah, except in certain Sephardic sects. In certain Sephardic sects, they actually write serious amounts of money into their ketubah, $50,000, $100,000, $200,000, and they actually co- collect it upon uh, a divorce. Nowadays, people don't, it's such an insignificant amount of money that everyone's mochalit, everyone just says, I'm not really interested in this $50 or whatever, and no one really collects the money of their ketubah. However, much earlier, in the 6th, 7th, 8th, 9th centuries, When women were unable to support themselves, they didn't have jobs, they weren't career women, the money that they had in their ketubah actually could help them feed their children and put clothing on their back. It was important. And so when the when Rabbi Shimon comes along and says, yes, we'll allow her to have the get immediately, however, she doesn't collect the money of her ketubah, however, she doesn't collect the money of her ketubah, that, that is actually a very significant statement. It's a statement that if you look at Um, if you look at source number seven, we're going to skip six for a second. If you look at source number seven, it re- actually changed that. Already in the late 10th century, Reb Shrira Gaon comes along and says, V'acharei Rabbanan Savorai Birotam Shebeno Yisrael Hochot Venotzlop Agoyim Litolahan Gitin Veonet. So already we see that in his time, and even a little bit earlier, we see that the women are going amongst the goyim to collect their gitin. We'll talk about what that means in 30 seconds, right? Kofinoto. We force him to give her a get. It's not just that we place a ban on him. It's not that we say, you're chayev to give her a get. We actually force him to give her the get. The kotevla get l'alter, he writes her the get immediately. By the end of the 10th century, not only do we, number one, does she get the get immediately, number two, 
we force him to give her the get. But number three, she gets her ketubah. Manama, time, or code words, 100 or 200 zuds. It's the money of her ketubah. She collects her ketubah. If you jump back for one second to source number six, source number six is one of the earliest sources we have for the reason why all of a sudden the trajectory of the aguna is shifting. The trajectory of the aguna is changing and morphing into something very different. Originally, we had no reason to allow women to, in, to initiate the divorce process. Furthermore, we weren't very harsh on the men who didn't want to give them again. And slowly but surely, one century after another, every hundred years or so, we see another level being added to make it easier, to make it more relevant, to make sure that she's not going to be to continue in this abusive relationship. What happens? Source number six. Why is this happening? The ihu yahiv la gita alter, alter. He must give her the get immediately. Why? Kidei shelo teitzena beno Yisrael letarbutra. Why? Because we are concerned that the Jewish women will stray towards other things. What are those other things? We saw it actually referenced slightly in source number seven. There's a concern. There's something going on. There's a, there's a very serious issue that was happening within the Jewish culture at that time. And what was happening was two things. The first thing that was happening was women were stuck in these relationships that they didn't want to be in. And they were trying to figure out a way to get out of this situation. Sometimes they would look inside their communities and they would turn towards their leadership and they would say, what am I supposed to do? And so we see in these sources that the leadership band together and they figured out a way to make it easier on her. Whether it was taking away this waiting period, whether it was allowing her to, to take some money out of the marriage with her, the money of her ketubah, or whether in source number seven we saw that he actually is forced to give her the get. But there's another very important thing that was happening. And what was happening, you'll see in sources number eight and nine, what was happening was that the Jewish women were turning towards other religions. In source number eight, in the history of the Jews, we see that the Gaonim are lenient uh, on, within their own communities to try and create, make it easier within the Jewish culture for women and men to get divorced when necessary. Why? Source number eight, the ruling nation and the ruling religion operated upon the family life of the Jewish people in Babylon. Since the Quran, what was the operating religion? The operating religion was Islam. Since the Quran improved the lot of women in society, granting the right granting the wife the right to demand a bill of divorce from her husband without losing her acquisitions, what was happening? If you looked around at the other religions, at the other cultures, at the other societies, when a man and woman would get divorced in Islam, the woman would leave with everything she came in with. So we now we look at our religion, we say, wait a minute, we're going to have some problems. Because in our religion, these women are stuck, they're left on the street, they're literally thrown out on the curb with nothing. They don't, she doesn't get her 200 zuz, whatever that was worth in those times, I don't know, $250? Right? Even if it was enough to live on for a year, she doesn't get any of that money. What are we going to do? How are we going to react? How are we going to respond? However, in Rabbi Riskin's book, which is an, a critical work within this discussion of the modern Zyaguna, Rabbi Riskin says that actually is not completely true. Um, it wasn't that in Islam, all of a sudden, the women were given lots of things. They left with the house. They left with the estates. It's not actually what happened. 
He disagrees completely and he says as follows in source number nine, in pre-Islamic times, a wife could be repudiated by her husband for pronouncing the words, Antitak, you are divorced. According to the teachings of the Fiqh Antalak, the husband has the right to pronounce it even without justifiable justifi- cause. The husbands can just divorce their wives as they want. However, nowhere is there a provision for a wife to declare talaq and thereby repudiate her husband. But this notion of female-initiating divorce does not really exist in Islam, even if there is an objective reason. However, continues Rabbi Riskin, in an excerpt not on your sheet, what actually was happening during, in, the, in the culture during that time? It's not that we were that this notion of female initiated female initiated divorce was being challenged. It's that when the Gaonim talked about women leaving Judaism and going to other things, it was a very real and legitimate concern. What was happening when the women would go to Islam and they would go to their to their Muslim neighbor and they say, "Listen, I'm in trouble. I'm stuck in this marriage." Their Muslim neighbor would say to them. Listen, if you convert to my religion, if you convert to Islam, then you will automatically be divorced from your Jewish husband. So what was happening was that women were leaving Judaism as a response to their inability to get out of relationships and get out of marriages that they didn't want to be a part of. What was occurring was that women would go and they were turning to other, to Islam in particular, and they were looking for a solution. They needed a way to end their relation, their religion, their relationship, and the only way to do that was by changing their religion. And so the response seems to be that within our religion, the leadership recognized and acknowledged that this was happening, and in order to make sure that the women continued to remain part of Judaism, they had to figure out a way to allow for women to initiate the divorce process and actually be able to continue. This actually happens in modern day times. The concept of women leaving Judaism because of the abuse that they've endured and their inability to continue living without being able to remarry happens all the time. I actually had a situation where a man came over to me last December and we were talking about something. He was telling me how this actually happened to him in reverse. His wife wouldn't receive the get. And we know, as we discussed earlier, that Takana Rabbeinu Gershom requires him, requires her to receive the get willingly. And she wasn't interested in receiving the get. Guys, this man's name was, was Ted. And so Ted turned to me and he said, let me tell you, it took me four years to figure out how I was going to be able to do this whole thing. And after four years, I said to myself, if I'm here, and this is the abuse that I endured, and this is what happened in my life, and I couldn't figure out a way to uh, have her receive again and make it all happen, call the homer how much more so all these women who really have nowhere to go and nowhere to turn. I could not blame anyone. He went on a whole diatribe. I uh, could not blame anyone for wanting to leave the religion because of the way that they're being let down even by our leadership, by the people, by our community. And so what happened was that we see that the community and the leadership became sensitive to this idea that we need to figure out a way for women to be able to continue living their life as a Jewish woman and be able to continue uh, in their own relationships and be able to remarry. And so in the Gaonic area, this was being dealt with. By the end of the Gaonic era, era as we just saw, we can breathe a sigh of relief. The sigh of relief is that the women are being looked after. We're figuring out a way to make sure that the women aren't being left. However, fast forward a couple hundred years, enter the era of the Rishonim, 
all of the hard work of the Gaonim to make sure that it's easier for the women to be able to remarry. We saw the 12 months and the two weeks and the give of the get now and force her to give the get now, whether she gets the things that she takes with her, whether she gets her ketubah. All of those factors were wonderful until we enter the era of the Rishonim when everything seems to be, could be overturned. Rabbeinu Tam is the most famous proponent of this, of this notion. In Tosfut in source number 10, Rabbeinu Tam says, Aval amrama isalai lo commenting on that original Gemara that we saw, what is the case of the Moredit, where she says, where she wants to uh, make his life miserable, but if she says, Ma'isalai, you are repulsive to me, we don't force her to stay in that relationship. Pirish Bakuntris, Rashi comes along and explains, Lo kaifinam la la'amotachtav, I'm in source number 10. Lo kaifinam la la'amotachtav, we don't force her to stay in the relationship with him. Ela yitain get, he must give her the get, v'yotzav, the lo ketubah, and she goes out without her ketubah. V'yish mefarshim, dekofin otoloti. And we even go as far to say that it's not just that he must do this, but there are those who say that we force her to do, we force him to give her the get. The underlined part of source number 10, I hope it's underlined in your sheets, is it? Excellent. Rabbeinu Tam comes along and says, no, 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 no. That's not how it works. That's not what this Gemara means. When the Gemara says that she can say, you are repulsive to me and we don't force her, he understands it completely differently, completely differently, and we could go through that at another time, but that's a whole other shear in and of itself. What is his concern? His concern is that her reasons for wanting to divorce him are not l'shem shemayim. They're not good. They're not ideal. They're not right. They're not objectively correct. Whatever it is, we are concerned that the reason she wants to get divorced is because she found someone better. And because we're concerned that that's the only reason she wants to get divorced, we do not allow him to be forced to give her a get. If he wants to give it out of his own free will, he goes into, hey, no one's going to argue on you. That's in the Pusik. The Pusik says if you want to give her the get out of your own free will, you can. But this notion of a forced get, this idea that we require him, we put pressure on him, we ban him, we put him in chayrim, we make sure that he gives her the get, no, no, no. It doesn't happen. Rabbeinu Tam basically overturns everything that happened during the Gaonic era with a couple of small caveats. Um, but, and we see that this notion and the trajectory of the Agunad that we thought was happening, where the women were being protected and all these, all these things were coming towards them, that's actually not happening anymore. And Rabbeinu Tam comes along and says, no, no, no. Right, Riskin in the same book actually says, what was the difference? We just went on this whole thing talking about how in the, in the Muslim countries, the women were able to leave their religion and were able to leave Judaism and turn towards Islam and they were being protected. In source number 11, it is important to remember that unlike the Gaonic and Spanish authorities who lived in Muslim countries, Rabbeinu Tam lived in Christian France, where the prohibition against divorce was a major principle in Catholicism. At a time when the prevailing culture insisted upon the permanence of the marital bond, it would, it would hardly have behooved the religious minority to appear lax in the matter. The practical result of his opinion was that from his time on, Jewish courts were to be prohibited from coercing a husband to divorce his wife on the basis of her claim, he is repulsive to me. What happens? He's making a historical note. That if you compare the, his, the historical context of the Gaonim to the historical context of the Rishonim, we see that the external pressures of Islam were not relevant to Rabbeinu Tam. Rabbeinu Tam was living in a culture where the fabric of society was predicated on the notion that we only 
have uh, that we only allow for marriage to happen once. This notion of divorce was not relevant, and so therefore there was no external reason for Chazal, for our leadership, for the rabbinic leadership to band together and make it easier on the women. In the next nine minutes, <laughs> I want to talk to you about three resolutions. I have just gone through this lengthy, lengthy snippet of a background, and trust me, there's lots more to say on this, to show that we have this problem called the modern day Aguna. The problem, again, is that we have situations where there are women who want to get divorced. In the Gemara's language, it's called ma'iselai. You are repulsive to me. I cannot continue to be married to you. We went through the history. We went in a chronological fashion to show and to demonstrate that there's a tension within the literature to understand exactly what it is about uh, what are we going to do to make it easier or less easy on her to get divorced in a situation where she wants to and she doesn't. We saw option. There's waiting period. There's forcing. There's not forcing. There's this and that. Does she get money? Does she not get money? Does she get the clothing she came in with? That's what, they're, that's what everyone's talking about. But the reality is, by the end of the, by in the, already in the Rishonim, 500, 600, 700 years ago, we don't really have a solution. We're stuck. We're almost back to where we were with one caveat that we require her to accept the get willingly because of Takana Rabbeinu Gershom. Right? But beyond that, she's stuck. The modern day Aguna is still a problem. It's still something relevant. It's something that was being discussed. Proposals were made in the French rabbinate in the 17th century. Maybe we're going to do this. Proposals have been made for the last 2,000 years, but ultimately nothing has come of it. There's no general consensus. There's no general conclusion about what we're to do. Three options that I want to discuss with you. The first option is the notion of Kiddush Eitzhaut. And what it means is that it was ba- it's basically the idea of marriage under false pretenses. And we know that this is a very heavily discussed and debated and argued upon issue. Rav Moshe has four chuvot. Rav Moshe Feinstein has four chuvot where he actually applies this notion of kiddush taut, where he says, you enter this marriage under false pretenses, and he gives very specific stipulations over what it means to have entered under false pretenses, how to meet those requirements, and then what happens? The marriage never took place in the eyes of everybody. It's as if they were never married. Kiddush tout marriage under false pretenses, we don't view you as actually having ever been married. Rav Moshe, in this excerpt from Atshuva, in source number 12, says as follows. So what's the case? A woman who married her husband. We find out that he's not able to engage in a sexual relationship. So what happens? We find out that he's unable to engage in a physical relationship with her. And says Rav Moshe, this is critical. We find out that he knew about this problem before they got married. Number one, it must be present before marriage. Number two, he must have known about it. And this girl, unfortunately, she's very young. She has to get married. He doesn't want to divorce her. He, he runs away. We can't find him. We can't, he won't give her a get. What are we supposed to do? The modern Tiaguna, this happens, I don't know, 100 years ago, 50 years ago. Whenever this happens, uh, recently, modern day applications, it's a situation where they're not able to have what we will call a marital life. 
he knew that they weren't going to be able to have a normal marital life, and he willingly withheld that information from her. Since this is a matter of igun, she's an aguna. Therefore, I must, must, must engage in a conversation about this and an investigation about this. But we see the tension within the words of Ramosha that he's very nervous about approaching this topic. And I'm going to have to figure out what to do and hopefully God will help me figure it out. Therefore, he concludes after um, four pages. In, in our situation, and we know that he had this problem before they got married. We can't get a get from him. Veshumoven at all. Ain la agna. We should not uh, make her an aguna. Veyesh la hatira mitam kijushetaut. Therefore, she is muteret. She is allowed to continue on with her life as a single woman. And it's a situation of kijushetaut. It's a situation where they engaged in the marriage under false pretenses. She thought that they were going to be able to have a normal marital life. Unfortunately, they weren't able to. He refused to give her a get. He ran away. He wasn't interested in the conversation. And so therefore, Rav Moshe here is talking about situations where we allow for Kiddush Um Elsewhere, there, as I mentioned, there are four Shuvah about this. This discussion is a huge discussion being, that, that's happening nowadays. Um, classic examples of when we try and apply Kiddush Taut is in situations where we find out that he is uh, that he is gay, in situations where we find out that there were mental illnesses involved, in situations where we find out that they're unable to have a normal physical relationship. In all these situations, there's a discussion over whether or not we can apply Kiddushay Ta'ut. The stipulations, again, there are four stipulations. Number one, he had to know about it before marriage. Number two, he had to willingly conceal it from her. Number three, they have to separate immediately upon finding out about this issue. Right? They can't live together for another six months because it indicates that she was okay with it after she found out about it. And number four, he has to refuse to give her the get, obviously. And in those situations, we can apply Kiddushay Ta'ut, perhaps. While this, is an important, uh, while this is an important option that's relevant to us, I want to focus on the next two. The next one is the, is the bonding arbitration agreement. It's the prenuptial agreement. This is an excerpt from the prenuptial agreement by the Basin of America. Hopefully, it is my hope that it, every single person in this room knows what this is. If not, the prenuptial agreement is basically a document that says that the husband, that two people sign before they get married, thus prenuptial agreement. They sign it and you can read it, you get the whole, the, the whole, um, the whole document online. The excerpt that I have for you says, for every day that the husband and wife have separated but he refuses to give her a get, he must pay her $150 a day. It's creating a financial penalty that is enforceable in court. It has, it has been upheld in court. It is 100% effective. Whenever there is a prenuptial agreement that is signed and he refuses to give her a get, we pull out the prenuptial agreement and a get is given. Let me reiterate that. It is 100% effective. If you leave here with anything, leave here with telling everybody you know to sign the prenuptial agreement. That's the party line. And I agree with it personally as well. It's the preventative approach. It's the way to make sure that situations of igun, that no woman will become an aguna because we thought about it before. 
And whenever two people are getting married, they never think it's going to happen to me. It's obviously not going to happen to me because my husband is perfect and wonderful. However, it's going to happen to someone you know. I, the most tragic moment of my life so far, one of the most tragic moments of my life so far, was last year when a friend of mine called me up and said, I'm not calling you as my friend, I'm calling you as a professional. And you as a professional, I need your help because I'm 25 years old and my husband is refusing to give me a get and I'm stuck. And I don't have a prenup and what am I supposed to do? How are you going to help me? What services can you provide to me to make sure that I can continue on with my life? And I got involved and because we were all involved and we made sure that it didn't, that it didn't happen, today she has a get. But let me tell you, every single person knows someone who needed this, who needed the prenup. And because we haven't created a culture where it's completely acceptable and required where everybody signs a prenup, we have a problem. But from a halakhic perspective, what is the prenup all about? A husband is required to provide certain things for his wife. We discussed this at the very beginning. We call them mizonot. He's required to give her food, shelter. He's also required to provide for her in certain sexual ways as well, which obviously when they're getting divorced is not relevant. However, what we've done, what halakha has done, and what, there are, what our rabbinic leadership has done, is they said, how much money is it, how much money is the husband required to provide for her on a daily basis that amount is $150 to take care of her? Because they're still halakhically married. And so what we've done is we've created a civilly enforceable document, whereby we say that the woman, that the husband is required to give her the money that he halakhically and religiously owes her, but since it's a binding arbitration agreement, since it's an actual contract that we could take to court, he does. So it works within the halachic realm because he's providing for her what he halachically needs to provide for her because they're still religiously married. It works within the civil realm because it's an actual document that you sign. It's a contract. I'm engaging in a certain relationship with you. It's like any prenuptial agreement. It's been enforced. It's been upheld in court. And it hopefully will continue to be upheld in court. It's critical. And it's, this notion of the preventative solution will only work if each and every one of us creates a culture where this is completely accepted. We all signed the ketubah. You think that when they came out with the ketubah, everyone was like, sign me up? No, it's also a divorce document, right? You sign the ketubah, it's standard procedure. I think that we should have a poll. We'll have a little box, Eliza, at the end. We're going to rename the prenuptial agreement to something else. If we had it in some Yiddish word, everyone would be signing it. I'm convinced of it, right? We should just have a poll. Anybody who wants to sign the prenup, just call it something else. It's not a divorce document anymore. It's very romantic now because it's whatever. We'll make it pretty. We'll put a little, like, pomegranate on the side. Everything will be fine, right? All of a sudden, everyone's signing the prenup. One more minute. Sources 14, 15, and 16. The same Rabbeinu Tam, who came along earlier and said, we do not allow a force get anymore, that same Rabbeinu Tam came along and says, however, there is something else that we do. What is that something else that we do? We make sure that we put him in Khairam. We make sure that we don't do business with him. You can read the sources inside. I'm not going to read them now. The for, source 14 is from Rabbeinu Tam. Source 15 is Ashkenazic Rama. Source 16 is Rabbeinu Yosef within the Sephardic communities. Every community says, that we can place a ban on him. We should not do business with him. We should not give him an aliyah. We should not allow him in shul. We should not invite him over for meals. We shouldn't be friends with him. We should, it should, he should not be accepted as a member of our community. And by doing that, by banning him, by putting him somewhere else, we're going to make sure that we show and we band together as a community and we demonstrate that our community will not tolerate this type of abuse. Because hold, withholding a debt equals controlling abusive behavior. 
And if our community will stand up against domestic violence, and if our community will stand up against all of these things, put your money where your mouth is. Don't let them into your shul. Don't let them into your home. This is something that we shouldn't tolerate. It's within halacha. It's the requirement of each and every one of us to make sure we act responsibly and take it upon ourselves as, as a responsibility to make sure that we do not tolerate this form of abuse. I began today by talking about Leah and Dan Schwartz. And what happened with that case, he moves to Brooklyn, she's still in upstate New York, what's going to happen? Some of my friends end up outside of his store on the Friday before Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur was on Monday. What happened was he realized that no one was going to be purchasing anything from his store because they all all of a sudden realized that he was this person who was abusing his wife by not giving her a gift. And literally, they picked him up, they took him in a car, they took him to the sofa, and he wrote the get. And she had a get on Erev, on Erev Yom Kippur, it was in her hands. And I'm not telling you this because this is the exception to the rule, this is the rule. When a community comes together and says, we do not tolerate certain things, and we show what our values are, and we demonstrate what it is and what defines us as a community, it is in those moments that we are our strongest, that we are our most profound, that we're able to make a difference. It's those moments where we say, this is what we want, this is who we want to associate with, and this is what we don't want to associate with. It's our responsibility to make sure that, number one, we have everybody sign the prenup, and number two, that we demonstrate and show and we act as a community of responsible people who know what our values are, what our mission is, and what we want to do. Thank you. Yes. No. Um, can I turn this off? I don't know how to turn this off. <laughs> yeah. So the question on the table is, what is Kedusha Tout? So it's actually not, I don't think it's an actual document. I've never been present at a situation where they actually apply
So there are other ways. It's called, it's, the classic way is IED, intentional affliction of emotional distress. Um, there are other ways where you can where you can deal with this whole situation in civil court. Um, you can we we strongly recommend you can you can usually settle it out. You can sometimes settle it out of court, right? The reason that we sue people is because we want to give we want to basically say if I'll sue you, I'm going to win. I'll get you'll have to give me seventy five thousand dollars. I'll pardon it so that you don't have to give me the money, right? If you give me the gift, so it's like a little bit of an exchange. That's what generally happens. Yeah. So that's what she was talking about with Hedger Mayor about him. There are there are ways for men to get married without giving the get. Um, it's hard. It costs about ten thousand dollars. Yeah, it's not so expensive. It may maybe we'll get cheaper. I mean, there 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 are actually very valid reasons why you can get this thing called the Hedger Mayor about him. Um, Yeah, those situations. So uh, there, there are corrupt rabbis all over the place. I can give you a whole laundry list. We have files and files and files put together on this stuff. Yeah, but the people, people who can afford it, the people who can afford it, it's going to be more complicated than that to begin with. But um, $150 a day is $64,760 a year. Correct. Never, we will never, ever, ever give a penny to a husband. So we have a case. We have a case in the five towns where the the husband was. 